That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I mentioned a couple podcasts ago that one of the reasons that I I was doing uh, a podcast with a local spot here in Chicago that my friend runs uh, called A Sweat Life. She does sweat working, which is networking while working out for companies and um, blogs and stuff about health and wellness. And she asked me to be interviewed. And in talking to the person, uh, I, I kind of realized that so much of my happiness is derived by not being forced to be around people I don't like. Um, this was a this was an epiphany that came about because I went to a wedding and I had to be around this person that I really really don't like, and the uncomfortableness and the awkwardness of that very small stretch of time where I had to be with someone that I really didn't like reminded me and made me realize how lucky am I and how magical and and serendipitous is it that I rarely have this feeling. And I thought how many people don't have that luxury. They go into the office and they work with someone they hate or their brother-in-law or their, their best friend's husband or somebody that they need to be around is just the worst. And how much that can bring you down because that put me, that being around that person at that wedding put me in such a bad mood. And um, I just was so thankful and I thought to myself, a great deal of my happiness stems from the fact that I have surrounded myself with amazing people. I hit the genetic lottery when it comes to my family, especially my close family that I see all the time. There's just no fighting. We get along great. Everybody is, you know, super supportive and loving. And, and then friends, same thing. I've chosen my friends wisely and I've removed people from my life pretty quickly that don't serve me. Um, and how, and how much that just makes your everyday interactions with everybody better when you, when you bounce from person to person. Um, and in fact, the only time I feel like I'm dealing with that is on the internet. And it was funny. My girlfriend had a sleepover and all of us were there. And there was a psychic. And let me just start out by saying I do, I do not generally believe in psychics. Um, I gave this woman zero information. She was told nothing about me. And she really nailed a lot of stuff. And it weirded me out. And she nailed a lot of stuff about everybody else in the room, my close friends that I knew. Um, it was it was weird. But I'm not going to go too far on the psychic tangent except for to say that she was talking to me about this battles that I was going through. And I could not. I was literally sitting there racking my brain and I'm like, there isn't anybody. I don't have anybody in my life that I have that with. And my one girlfriend was like, uh, Spain, Twitter. And I was like, oh, like it, it, it just feels like a separate part of life. But I probably should acknowledge that that is the one place that I'm constantly being met with a-holes and trolls and, and conflict that I don't have everywhere else and that I don't like conflict and I don't like fighting. And yet for some reason, uh, there's this sort of, you know, stubbornness to remain in that space and to interact, um, which I'm working on every day. <laughs> but, uh, but that's why when I saw this book and this author, that's my guest today, I was so interested in it because I do, um, love the idea of other people who have to deal with that finding coping mechanisms for the people around them that make them miserable. And so, um, this podcast is specifically about the a-holes in your life and mostly at work, but there's a little bit in how to deal with that that you can, that you can translate over to other parts of life. Um, 
And it's, it's, it's with Bob Sutton, who is a uh, Stanford professor and organizational psychologist. And his book, uh, his two books about a-holes are sort of the, uh, the, the seminal work on how to deal with these jerks. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope it helps you deal with the a-holes that surround you either on the internet or otherwise. Here's the interview. That's what she said. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in Bob Sutton, a Stanford professor and organizational psychologist who's written over 150 articles and seven books, including The No A-Hole Rule. We're going to say A-Hole all day because this is a Disney podcast and we're going to save my <laughs> producer the, the, the time and effort of having to bleep out every time we say the full word. Um, but I'll say it now just for fun, asshole, and that'll get bleeped and then from now on we'll just say A-Hole. Um, so the, the 2007 book, The No A-Hole Rule, and then the follow-up this year, The A-Hole Survival Guide. Um, so first of all, an organizational psychologist is one that researches employees behavior and attitudes, how to improve company morale, hiring practices, management systems, training programs, all of that. So I want to start first on why you decided that that was the type of psychology that fascinated you. Um, I was a psychology major at um, Berkeley uh, and uh, in, in the 70s. And if uh, you have an idea what Berkeley was like in the 70s, there was some really kind of flaky people. <laughs> and I decided I wanted to do something practical. So I got interested in the workplace. And I come from a family where there's a lot of uh, crazy entrepreneurs. So I started getting interested in that. And then I applied to graduate school and started studying the workplace. And I've been doing it sort of ever since. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you. What did your parents do? And was there a lot of talk about what went on at the office or what went on in their workplaces that inspired you to get interested in this before uh, okay. you were So my dad was entrepreneur and government contractor, and he was just at war with how horrible it was to uh, be a government contractor and how abused he felt every day. So mm -hmm. uh, we sort of grew up with a chip on our shoulder about how dysfunctional organizations are. And, and seriously, I also saw the effect of, uh, of somebody who would sort of struggle to keep a work place together, struggle to keep himself under control, and deal with really crazy clients. So uh, there was a lot of talk about assholes growing up in, in my family, to tell you the truth. So right, I think that right. was part of it, too. Right. So you grew up with people who, who had a lot of influences in their lives that made them mad or sad or frustrated. Yep. And that sort of festered. And it grew as you as you learned more about organizational psychology. And you've written a bunch of books, but the big the one that seems to have taken over the zeitgeist and really uh, influenced people was the one in 2007, the No A Hole Rule. Right. And you were writing that more to alert people to the problem, which you described as TCA, the total cost of a holes to corporate success and employee health. And I know that you know I, I actually had another sort of leadership speaker and author on mm -hmm. who also talked about she uses actual, you know, arithmetic to show you if you if you're this much of an employee, you're a plus this. But if you're yep. a bad person, you're a minus. And look at now you found yourself in the minus, even if you're a good person, everything else is it weighs so much more than you think. Um, so what alerted you to the idea that maybe we weren't aware of just how much it costs a workplace when it's got an a-hole or many? Well, well, there were there were two things. One is I'm an academic, and so I follow the peer-reviewed literature. And uh, if you kind of fast forward to 2017, we've got literally a couple hundred thousand studies that show that um, if you've got jerks in the workplace, that uh, that it, it damages their their mental and physical health. It uh, drives them out, 
and it makes them less productive and creative. So the this is all was, employees, not the, not uh, the a holes. Uh, yeah, especially the ones that the a holes affect. The a holes sometimes get ahead. We can talk about that. There are sometimes when it works for them, even if it doesn't work for everybody around them. And then the other part is that. Uh, my wife at that time, who was uh, essentially running a large law firm with about a thousand lawyers, um, let's say a hole management is a big part of senior executive of a senior executive's job in mm-hmm. a large law firm. So she would come home and talk about that a lot. So that's how you became an expert on a holes. Yes. <laughs> are you certain that you is. yourself are not an a-hole? Maybe this is all one long con to get it out and, and to heal yourself. Well, um, my, <laughs> my line is there's a difference between certified and temporary um, a-holes. And I promise you, and anybody who works with me can tell you, there are certain situations that set me off and turn me into a temporary a-hole. But I don't think I am consistently across times and places. So okay, that's, that's very line. important to identify, <laughs> right? That is important, though, to identify if the person that you're dealing with is always an a-hole and therefore certified or temporarily, because I'd imagine the way you deal with them is very different. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, all of us, when we're hot, when we're tired, actually when we're around other a-holes, yes. we are prone mm-hmm. to start acting like that. Uh, the The people who I think are even more problematic are those who – uh, across times and places, treat people like dirt and might not even realize that uh, th- that they're doing it. But uh, but yeah, it's an important distinction. And one of my lines is that uh, a holes are us. That under the wrong situations, <laughs> we can all turn nasty. So the first book, you were writing it with the target market being more the people who have control over filling their workplaces with a holes, right? It was it yes. was going it was going to say, are you aware when you're hiring this hotshot guy who you think is quite talented and you let it slide that he treats everyone else in the office like crap? Are you aware of the cost that that's taking and the toll it's taking on the rest of your your workers? That was sort of the goal there, right? That that, that was sort of the goal. I talked a little bit um, about how to deal with him, but that was seventy five percent of the book. You're exactly right. So identifying the problem was that one. The A-Hole Survival Guide, your new book, is the solution to if you are among them, if they're <laughs> your boss or your coworker, or whatever. Um, and so it, it's less about, you know, this is a bad corporate strategy, and it's more about, listen, inevitably, you are going to have to be around A-Holes. I'm going to help you deal with it. And it feels like more and more we're talking about a loss of civility in the world. Yep. And so it feels like there are more A-Holes than ever. Yeah, so so a-holes have always been with us, and I mean, since I was, as I say, seven or eight years old, my father warned me that I would have to deal with them the rest of my life, so this <laughs> isn't a new phenomenon, but there's a couple of things that probably make it worse. Uh, uh, probably the leader in our lives is the web. There's mm-hmm. all sorts of um, evidence that when you com- communicate with somebody, um, and even if you know who they are, if you don't have eye contact with them, if you don't have have an emotional sense of the tone in their voice, for example, that they're more likely to be nasty to you. And so I teach at Stanford. I have I have students tell me how they'll be in a big open office and they'll be in a war on the Internet. There's this thing called Slack they use to co- mm-hmm. collaborate now. It's a, yeah. it's a collaboration software that a lot of them use. And they'll literally have Slack wars in the in the same room sitting with somebody who they aren't looking in the eye at. It's just crazy. That is um, crazy. And it's even worse when it's anonymous, of course, with the trolls right. and everything. And, uh, and and another thing that causes people to be jerks is uh, being in a hurry. And then a final thing is uh, not to, uh, you know, name too many names, but uh, when you've got leaders in society who uh, treat others with disrespect, 
it becomes contagious and we start modeling them even unconsciously. Really? That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, in, in something that I read or I listened to, uh, it usually goes disdain down and envy up. And yes. so there is this idea of the people that have achieved some sort of success, wealth, power, et cetera. You will envy them even if the person that they are isn't necessarily usually viewed as a, a good person or whatever. And if you've achieved a certain amount of power, wealth, success, then you, even if you don't want to, maybe you've just uh, been groomed to, to look down on others and then therefore be an a-hole to them. Yeah, yeah. and that's true. One of the most reliable ways to turn people into a jerk um, independently of personalities to give them power. They become mm. more selfish. They become more focused on Do you know why that needs. is, though? What's the psychology behind that, beyond the obvious of you become sort of entitled? Well, so, so well, beyond the entitlement, what, what starts happening, especially in sort of a corporate structure, is, is that you start noticing that when you uh, uh, just give people a little glance or a quick order, they jump at your command. So you start getting used to the fact that you have all sorts of influence. There's also some really weird new research that this is really strange, that people who are rich, they tend to look at things, and people who are poor tend to look at people. And the reason Mm -hmm. they do that is when you're poor or have low power, other people can really hurt you. But the more power and more wealth that you have, the more you can just sort of focus on your stuff and be a material person because other people aren't going to hurt you or exploit you. But wow. uh, that, that, that's like pretty deep research. But, but, but the, the general notion, I think the best analogy um, for modern life is think of, um, of boarding an airplane and there's the people in first class and then there's the, the um, people in coach and then there's the people in ultra bad coach. And as you walk down the, 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 past the airplane, you walk past the people in first class and you can even sort of feel that envy and disdain, as you're calling it, going different directions. And, and there's research that shows, by the way, that, uh, when, that uh, when people walk through um, coach, through first class to coach, they're more likely to have air rage incidents both the people in first class and in coach, because you see the huh. status differences. Very bad Interesting. for us. Yeah. Well, that's a very <laughs> obvious way to display status, right? You usually in life are not quite as uh, face-to-face with this person is better than you, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, it's, the, it's one of the most obvious. And then we're jammed in that little yeah, aluminum can. uncomfortable very, and hot and, yeah. 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 Um, I wonder, and this is a tangent before we get back to the other stuff now that you've, now that you've got me thinking about this, sure. are very successful and powerful people who are not, disdainful and who treat people well is that some miracle of good proper parenting and maybe they uh-huh. were maybe they're old rich instead of new rich or maybe they're used to it or what you know what what are the what are the things that must come together for people who achieve power to not become that way well, well so, so so i like that question because it isn't like if you become rich and powerful you automatically become a jerk it's just <laughs> right, it's, right. It's, it's, it's a risk factor it's like uh, um, but but um, but the things that will stop people from becoming um, a jerk is, is is if they were raised by uh, less crazy parents who had them focus more on collaboration rather than stomping on people to the top. A lot of it's like this mental model of what does success mean for me? If success mm. means that I'm always number one and I'm better than everybody else and I stomp on everybody on the way to the top, that's a mental model that's going to lead you to be a nasty boss because you always want to crush people. Whereas if your your mental model is well, the way I get ahead is by helping other people succeed, um, and doing a good job myself. So that so so, so that is part of it. Um, the other thing that's really clear from um, 
from evidence about people who um, are jerks versus not is whether or not they have people around them who can tell them the truth right, when right. they've been a nasty person to get them to calm down. So I'm, one of my favorite examples in the book is about Winston Churchill. It was uh, the darkest days of uh, World War II, 1940. I mean, they were losing the war. It was a mess. And, uh, and uh, somebody went to his wife, Clementine, one of his staff, and said, uh, Winston's being a real jerk. He's yelling at us a lot. He's being nasty. And she wrote him a letter and said, Winston, people are complaining about you. I've noticed you're not being as kind as you used to be. Calm down. We, the nation needs you to be more civilized and to listen better. And to me, that's the kind of person that we all need in our life, somebody who can actually tell us the truth. Right. We talk about that a lot with uh, spoiled athletes and entertainers and stuff, right? You surround yourself with yes people, and yeah. it makes you worse and worse by the day because you're not used to being told no, and then when you are, oh, we're dealing with that with uh, Jerry Jones in the NFL right now. Oh, not getting his Jones, way, oh, so he's what, just going to sue everybody. <laughs> so, so it is interesting that, that, that the, the most famous CEO whisperer in Silicon Valley history just passed away. His name is Bill Campbell, like Steve Jobs. Um, he did the Google team. Just He was also CEO himself of Intuit, was famous for being the person who could calm down. He, many people claim that he helped Steve Jobs become a non-asshole by the end of his life. Hmm. Um, he was the coach of the Columbia football team until he was 40 years old. <laughs> so, wow. So, so yeah. just, just famous guy. Everybody called he him the brought coach. The team. So, yeah, he brought the team sort of mentality over to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, so let's get into some practical stuff for people who have to deal with a-holes. So everybody, really, but some of us more so than others. Right. Um, it's actually funny. I, I In one of my previous podcasts, I mentioned that part of – I realized not that long ago that part of the reason I'm such a happy person is that I do not have to deal with very many a-holes. Um, Yeah, I mean, no one in my family is an a-hole that I have to hang out with. I don't hang out with a-hole friends because I don't have time. I just hang out with the ones I like. (laughs) And my colleagues aren't a-holes, especially because I'm not Uh – I'm in Chicago and most everybody's somewhere else. So I I Uh see the people that I work with and that's it and, you know, and that makes you so much happier. And you mentioned – you know, in, there's a lot of research from your book about, you know, if you get exposed to somebody rude or who's an a-hole, it makes you turn into that as well. And then you pass it along because now you're frustrated and you're bringing, you know, they're bringing you down and you're bringing everyone else down. So to prevent people from having to just, you know, fly solo surrounded by a-holes uh-huh. with no tools, um, let's go through the tools that you su- suggest. And the first one you start with uh, seems obvious, but maybe not that easy in practice. And that's avoid. Yeah. So... So if the first one to me is quit or get out if you possibly can. So that's quitting the job, which isn't possible for many of us. But but there, there's actually good research that shows that even if you're kind of stuck in in the same workplace with them, or the same uh, you know, or our clients or customers, that if you can literally avoid frequency of contact with them or even distance, there's there's this uh, great set of studies that show recent studies that show that. Uh, if you sit within 25 feet of a toxic employee, so an a-hole, um, that you're more likely to become one because it's a contagious mm-hmm. disease and you're more likely to be fired. So that's, that's one strategy. Another kind of strategy, a lot of us have jobs where uh, we, we contact or work with people mostly through the web or over the phone, is to try to just limit the frequency with which we uh, communicate with them. So, so one of the heroes of my book, who I will not name, she had a, a dissertation advisor who was incredibly abusive both in person and over email, and she'd wait for the seven or eight nasty emails to pile up over a two-week period, 
then she'd send a four sentence response and she did that for like three years. Mm. So it's like, it's like kryptonite, anything you can do to reduce your exposure to them or take a break. If you're starting to lose it, there's a bunch of evidence that, uh, that when we take breaks and calm down and are with other supportive people, that it sort of reduces the amount of pain and in, in that we can marshal our coping resources. So I, I like both of those. It totally makes sense. If you can't move your office, though, that's a problem. Or if your cube is right next to them, that's tough unless you can find a right. reasonable reason to move. And then in the, in, in the responding slow, I think that works better, obviously, if you're in a power position or if you're not in a, in a job that requires a certain amount of immediacy. Right, if you're just right. not responding to somebody, you might get fired, right? Because then they can go to the boss and say, listen, this person never responds to me. It takes them three emails. And that's not usually a great way to work. Yeah, so I think that's right. And but, but even uh, when I was in graduate school, I studied uh, surgical nurses, and boy, talk about people who are abused nurses. Uh, the, the patients are after them, the doctors are after them, the nurse, the, the hospital administrators, and and yet they would do things like they had the the nurses' lounge, and we were as researchers were not allowed in there either. And they would go in there, uh, sort of, and they they sort of recover, and they sort of come out and be sort of fortified again. So even hmm. bits of escape sometimes can right. help. Right. The the key then would be if you can't really wait three emails, at least wait twenty minutes. Don't respond right away because then you're giving them what they want, which is right. to get a rise out of you, and then you're probably responding with you know some some jerk infected in you instead of, that, <laughs> instead that's, of that's right. Or, and, and you can recruit a powerful ally sometimes too. That, yeah. So that, that's the next one. You said you know find other people in the office that. Uh, agree that someone is a jerk, which I guess could be a little dicey because you got to make sure you don't uh, accidentally try to align with someone who, as it turns out, is best friends with the a-hole. Right, right, right. So, um, so, it, so if you're going to bring down a, a jerk, there's all sorts of evidence that that uh, that that the two things are: number one, uh, how strong is your case, and number two, having allies as many as possible. It's great if they're powerful allies, but even if, if you look at what it takes to, to bring down people who are jerks, including people who are engaged in sexual harassment and assault, that the more people who are telling the same story you are and the better the documentation, the more likely you are to, to be able to bring somebody down. And, and if it's just you, especially if you're a relatively powerless person fighting solo, boy, it's a tough situation to be in, be in. it's a hard way to win. Yeah, and I guess we should say there's a difference between an office a-hole or a bully versus illegal or abusive behavior, right. right? So most of these tools that we're suggesting might work for abusive or, or sexual assault or illegal behavior, but these are more geared towards uh, run-of-the-mill bullying and a-hole behavior because I would hate to mislead people who are yeah, in more serious situations I, I think, I, I think by telling them the, to avoid, <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's, not, that's not the way you should handle it if it's really serious. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and, and I, I, I would also um, – add to put, sort of put a point on it that it's actually not against the law to be an equal opportunity asshole in every United States from what I can, every state in the country from what I can tell looking, looking at uh, the laws and uh, talking to other experts who know more. And so if you've got somebody who insults you, who glares at you, who excludes you and does it, and there's no evidence, it's because of, for example, sexism or racism or ageism, it's probably not against the law. So, right, right. Uh, so, so those are the situations where you've mostly that that I'm talking about, although it, it does leak over sometimes into, you know, more vile sort of crimes, if you will. Um, there's there's one other kind of coping technique we haven't talked about very much, which is just the ability, uh, if you can't escape somebody, 
who's making you feel bad about yourself to just reframe it so it doesn't hurt so much. Right. So you could laugh at them. Uh, One of my favorite methods, and there's good uh, experiments even to support this, is that if you are uh, dealing with somebody who is treating you like dirt in the process, if you can say to yourself, it's called it's time travel, temporal distancing. Um, when I look back on this in a week or a month or even tomorrow, it's not going to seem so bad. And sort of, if you will, do a little time travel. So there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other methods you can use to, to make the pain hurt less if you can't escape. Right. And I guess that helps, especially if you feel like there's an an end point to it, right? Yes. If the a-hole is someone you're on a project with and the project is done in a month, you'll say a month from now, I'm going to be telling stories about this a-hole. I'm going to be right. through it and done with it. I think that's probably a little bit harder if your time travel takes you to the future where that you still have an a-hole for a boss yep. and it feels and, and traveling forward in time to realize that you will still have that problem in two years is certainly not going to make you feel better. No, I know. It, 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 is, it is not going to make it better. It, it, and, and in fact, there, there's also, I, I like that point, there's also a negative side to it that sometimes people use that, that this is only temporary, that um, I'll get through this. They use that as an excuse every day not to escape from uh, or fight right. back from a situation where they really need to do it. So that's a great point. You've got to be careful how you use it. Well, you mentioned the reframing the behavior, and that's a great one because not everything can be spun to be funny, mm-hmm. but um, I certainly do think that there's an attitude that you bring to things that will sort of allow you to control how much somebody bothers you or how much something bothers yep. you. If you walk into the office and you think that everything that everyone does is something that's out to get you or that is to hurt you or you, you believe the worst in people. You know, I think part of the reason I can say, oh, I'm so lucky I don't have to hang out with that many a-holes is I probably do, but I probably just decide I'm not going to let this a-hole bring me down versus someone who walks in and says, this guy again. I can't believe that this is what they're doing. They're not prepared. They're late, whatever it is. And if you let that eat at you and you don't reframe yep. it, then then you're poisoning yourself. So so uh, so one of, one of the heroes of my book, one of my friends, her name is Becky Margiata. So uh, she went to West Point about 20 years ago. So she was a first year plebe where they get, they get hazed every day. And she said, every day I had one, some, some guy and she's like, she's little, she's like five, one. She said, I had some big guy an inch from my nose bending down, screaming at me because I couldn't recite every, um, every um, headline in the New York times is the kind of thing they do. And she said, I started viewing them as comedians as the funniest people I'd ever seen in my life. And it, and after a while, it just didn't bother me at all. And she, obviously, she's a very tough, resilient person. But I, but but sometimes, and this is a case where there is an end in sight. Sometimes, by not taking yourself or other people so seriously, can really mm-hmm. be useful. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it matters when you're dealing with these a holes um, mm-hmm. and how you decide to deal with them, whether you have the power to do anything about it. Yep. Right. So. Um, is this and and also I think you have to first gauge the situation. Is this something that needs to stop, or is it something that I prefer not to work with that person? I'm not a huge fan, but I'll get by, right? But if it's something that needs to stop, you have to figure out if you have any power over them because if you don't, that's going to make it tougher. Right. You mentioned if you have a good case. So do you have actual documentation or proof? Are you able to prove to an outside source that this mm-hmm. person is acting you know, in a way that doesn't benefit the company or, or, or company morale? And then you mentioned solidarity. So is there a way to find other people? Um, when you can't leave or quit, mm-hmm. how do you know it's the time 
to take that documentation and solitary and uh, solidarity and proof and actually speak up because well, there is so, a real risk in doing that. Yeah. So my my perspective on this is that although I'm a big believer in fighting back against people who oppress who, who oppress us, I also believe in uh, in doing it in such a way that you can win. And it, and it really is is a problem that you've got to sort of assess the situation and, and, and frankly, how much risk you're willing to take and how long you're willing to fight. I mean, the, the person in sports who still amazes me is Lance Armstrong. I mean, he was just <laughs> on every way, interpersonally, legally. I mean, he, he would, it, it, organizationally, he would just do everything where he would just crush his enemy. But there was some people like um, Betsy Andreo who just fought him publicly for years. I can't believe she did it. Mm-hmm. But she kept hanging in there and fighting. So I, so if you're as tough as Betsy Andreu, maybe you can keep going. But, but for many of us, sort of waiting for that moment, and you can see it in, in a lot of the cases, including with Harvey Weinstein lately, and even Catholic priests to take more extreme cases, a lot of times what happens when you have a jerk in your life, um, um, one of the reasons that everybody comes out and want, at once is that their enemies lie in wait and wait yeah. for that proprietous moment where they're showing some weakness. That happened to Lance Armstrong, too. And uh, I think it happened to Barry Bonds, too, as much as I'm – even though I'm a Giants fan, it's like, oh, you know, why did he have to be such a jerk? I think everybody's using <laughs> steroids, but he was the biggest jerk using right, steroids. Right, So I think that was that, – I went to a lot of Giants games. I'd watch his behavior. He was great, but he would treat everybody like dirt. And and uh, and and so so anyhow, this notion of sort of waiting for the proprietous moment is is I think very important. And 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 to your point, there are sometimes uh, people who are very powerful. We're mostly talking about people who are who are powerless. But um, but there's a bunch of executives I know who don't tolerate people who are jerks. I mean, uh, two examples of this. Um, um, one of them would 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 be uh, Reed Hastings. Reed um, is CEO of Netflix, and Netflix is a very tough performance-based um, environment. In fact, they say we're like a, a sports team. We're like a professional sports team. That's their motto. But they say no bozos and, and no a-holes, and they really mean it. They will fire people on the spot no matter how skilled they mm. are. Wow. So kind of an amazing company that way. Have you interacted with him about that? Have you have you talked to the Netflix Well, The, the main person I've talked to is uh, there's a woman named Patty McCord who was – the head of, of people from the from 30 employees till about uh, uh, three years ago, and uh, Patty was the person that if you had the jerk or the bozo, she would walk in and fire them. And, wow. and they and, and, and they still don't have a performance improvement plan at Netflix. They just come in and they fire you. <laughs> okay, and, it's, and, and, it's and, maybe and a bit extreme, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they are. Uh. So everybody knows that who works there. And people who work there are very loyal, but it's a very tough performance-based environment, and they, they pay in the top 10% of Silicon Valley. So that's sort of the deals. We pay you really a lot. We're like a professional sports team until the day we don't need you anymore, and then you're gone. Right. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> um, so we, you mentioned the, um, the, uh, the power and whatever matters. So how do you deal differently? I, I saw there was a Washington Post story about your book, and it, talked to, it was sort of uh, ruling – or, or, or deciding what kind of jerk you're dealing with based on a couple different categories, uh-huh. the lone boss hole. So that's of course, you know, the, the, the guy or gal in charge, the powerful bullies. So somebody else within the company who's got some, some clout, mm-hmm. 
Clueless jerk I want to get back to. Petty tyrant is someone you, in the story it mentions, you know, maybe someone in HR that you have to work with or right. someone in accounting that you have to work with. They don't have a ton of power, but they can make your life pretty miserable right. by being annoying about the receipts you turn in or something like that. The overbearing client, which is a tough one because if you're in a service industry, technically you work for them. Mm -hmm. But at some point you can just say, I don't want to work with you anymore. But let's go back to the clueless jerk because I think that's an interesting one. You mentioned whether they're temporarily or certifiably an a-hole. And also, I wonder if it matters why they're being an a-hole. You know, uh, do, you, do you have someone who's clueless about the fact that they're making everybody else miserable? So, 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 uh, so this is a really important line of questioning because one of the big distinctions I make is is somebody acting like a jerk because uh, I don't know they've read about Steve Jobs and they believe that's how they're going to get ahead even though that's <laughs> not exactly the Steve Jobs story so they believe that's how they're going to get get ahead is by crushing people and sometimes that even might be true and then more often if you look at research on self awareness um, people who are leaving a trail of um, others behind them who feel demeaned disrespected de-energized they don't even realize it's happening. They don't realize that they're being rude. They don't realize that they're ignoring them when they're right in front of them, um, that they're interrupting them, for example. And if you've got somebody who's a clueless jerk on your hand, uh, my perspective is that is, is even if they have more power than you, if, if you believe their intentions is, are good, pulling them aside and having the conversation where you say, you know, you're doing stuff that is hurtful to me, and is actually hurting your career. And just, I mean, a, a quick story. So I, we teach uh, executives at Stanford, and, and I had a, a executive vice president of a pretty large Silicon Valley firm come up to me and tell me her story. She said, so I have a CEO who used to always interrupt me and the other woman on the executive team and never would interrupt the four guys. So you can see this sort of, they go to a meeting and, and, and the guy's constantly interrupting them mm -hmm. and, 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 the, and, the, and the other executive vice presidents aren't being interrupted by the CEO at all. So she said what we did was we counted for a few meetings how often he interrupted us. And then we pulled them aside and said, you were interrupting us constantly. You are not interrupting the men. Uh, we think this is bad for you and bad for us. And, and she said, classic clueless asshole. He was crushed. He was humiliated, oh, wow. but he stopped. So he that doesn't know. always happen. Yeah. But, but, but I really like that story because that was a case where the guy just was being a clue, you know, a, a clueless man, interrupter, mansplainer type. So that yeah. was happening. So clueless people, uh, they might react defensively at first and then come around and say, thanks for telling me. You know, that, that's probably a pretty standard approach. I wonder about the clueless jerk who then, when you approach them, doesn't necessarily want to fix it. And I'm thinking <laughs> well, right now about, like, um, like, and I don't know if then it becomes a psychological disorder or some sort of awareness <laughs> issue. Because if you think about, say... Terrell Owens, who was a guy who so desperately, <laughs> yeah, like yes, he so desperately wanted to be liked, but he also completely turned people off. Or Martellus Bennett, currently now playing for the Patriots as of four days ago, the Packers. And he's a guy who has left behind in every place he's been sort of a bad feeling. But on the other side, he's creative and funny and he's and he's smart and he really wants to connect with people about all this other stuff so is that is that then like some sort of psychological issue where you don't understand that you're self-sabotaging well well, well, well well it's hard to distinguish but but um I, it's really funny because tio i remember perfectly from the 49ers but right. but but um but i i think that in, in some cases tio's a pretty good example that i just don't know whether he had any self-control and there are some people and I think that is psychological, that they just don't have very good control mechanisms, very good emotional control. 
And, and in a situation like that, I mean, the best you can hope for is uh, to is uh, hopefully to have somebody who can calm them down. And then I'm 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 thinking of Draymond Green sort of going yeah. off of the, the Warriors. He's, I think he's I mean he's really a great player, but I don't think he can completely control himself at all times. And in the speed at which uh, everybody else, uh, you know, Kevin Durant and everything rushes in and sort of j- and pushes him to the sideline when they see him going off. That's all you can. It's like having people who are shock absorbers around you. That's that's kind right. of the be- the best that 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 you can hope for in some other occupations to move away from uh, sports a little bit. And it depends on the situation you work. So I've worked with a lot of Silicon Valley firms now. And, and honestly, some of the people, including who graduate from the esteemed Stanford School of Engineering, where I teach, have terrible social skills and emotional control. And I don't know whether they're fixable. And there's kind of a recognition that, well, these are people we make individual contributors. Maybe we'll give them a closed office when everybody else has an open <laughs> office. I've literally seen that. Right. And 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 so sometimes if you can get in in a situation where people around you can protect you from yourself, the, the joke I've heard before is this is somebody who's smart but not cleared for customer contact. So ah, they shove them yes. in the corner and have them write code or write legal briefs. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. there are solutions, but in, in in a public stage like the sports world, it's much more difficult. Well, in the sports world, too, though, what we've learned is, for the most part, some very obvious exceptions, like Colin Kaepernick notwithstanding, uh-huh. if you are good enough, we will deal with it, right? right? So somebody else that's a terrible person will cut you. But if you're Terrell Owens, if you're a Hall of Fame player, which he is, even though he's not in there yet, mm-hmm. um, then, then it's okay. So I wonder, what would you tell somebody who said, well, what if I look at all the people um, politically mm-hmm. or otherwise that have found great success being a-holes. Yep. You know, maybe maybe that's the better approach than being a nice person because, you know, nice guys finish last cliche. Well, so so to me, so, so there are times when nice guys finish last is actually true. So I think it's it's always important to acknowledge that, which is that if you are in a situation where it's I win, you lose game, and there's no cooperation involved, then probably that's right. So, <laughs> then be an asshole. <laughs> so so I, I think of like the way a golf tournament works. That's actually probably true. Another another situation where it probably works is well, if it's my team against your team, this is one of the reasons that uh, you know we might be all closely bonded together, but we're going to fight against the enemy on the other team. That actually does make some sense. So 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 I I acknowledge that. But for the members of your team, which is the same as the members of your organization. If you're constantly um, uh, stealing credit from people, leaving them feeling demeaned and de-energized, the team as a whole, even though you may perform well, the team as a whole is not going to do as well if if you're not supportive of them and giving them everything you have for the overall team performance. And it's interesting to to go back to Barry Bonds. I mean, he was amazing, you know, whether he was juiced or not. Whatever he was doing, he was one of the best people in the league. But, but um, his selfishness did not help the uh, San Francisco Giants. They won no World Series with him, and he, he was a terrible team player. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and so, and, and, and just, you know, seeing that in, the, uh, you know, Michael Jordan in the, in the glory days during the Bulls and everything, they had a really cooperative sort of team. It wasn't just they had Jordan being the best person, uh, which obviously he was great. But, but, but when you see really um, team performance, both in business and in, um, and in sports, I think that you have people who are team players. And to go back to uh, the, one of the most famous ones in Silicon Valley is Steve Jobs. The way I start out the book 
is by uh, telling a story that Ed Catmull told me. Ed Catmull is president of Pixar. He worked with Steve Jobs for 25 years. And Ed Catmull's argument is that uh, Jobs did not become the great Steve Jobs who became a billionaire at Pixar and made the modern Apple until he learned to be more collaborative, to give people other credit, other people credit. And, and as, as Ed emphasized, he still was one of the toughest guys you ever negotiated with. He still could lose his temper when people did not do work he thought was of sufficient quality, but he became a much a more empathetic person and a much better team player, and that's when he became the great Steve Jobs. And, and, that, and that story is something I think that doesn't come out very much, but that's the argument that every time I talk to Ed Catmull, he makes about Jobs. Right. Well, and that's the same story with Jordan that we always heard. Until he really bought in on the triangle system, mm-hmm. until he really said, okay, the triangle offense is not what I want to do, but if I do it, it will make me better and the team will be better. Um, that, that was exactly the same thing. And and so I guess um, there are not as many total total a-holes that are successful, right? They're the ones who can control it and, and mm-hmm. use it use it for good. Um what if so? I know that your your fo- focus is on workplaces, but for people who are listening, what if the a holes are your family members, your oh. best friend's husband, um, people that you can't avoid, and that so it's oh. it's like you can avoid them better than you can an office, right? Because you probably don't have to see them every day. Right, right. If you have to see them every day, it's it's either because you haven't moved out of your house or you're taking care of them right. and they're a jerk, even though you're taking – or but, – but even though you can avoid them and you have to see them quite as often, when you're together, there is no common goal of like a project or a work, right? You're just supposed to hang out with them and not hate them. Um, what, do you, what do you do then? <laughs> so so it is, I'm terrible at these sort of questions. Nonetheless, I'll try to answer it. But, but the best that I can do, including with my own family, since I have some of those same issues in my family, is to try to – and this is where I use time travel in a little different way, and there's research about this – to try to say, okay, I really am not very happy with what this person is doing right now, but, but let me do a little time travel and see how I want to feel about myself after it's over um, tomorrow morning, I don't know when I'm talking to my wife about what happened with her relatives, and, 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 and that ability sort of to look back from the future, I think, is really useful. And, and then there's another method, um, which I don't know that I've used this for family, but one of my colleagues uses this in some of our terrible meetings at Stanford because we do have some a-holes at Stanford and administration in particular. <laughs> and, uh, and what he does, and it's kind of funny because this might be me, but I don't use this strategy – he pretends that he's a doctor who studies a-holism, jerkism. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, and what he says to himself is, I and I don't do this, by the way, what he says to himself is he says, I'm so lucky to see such an amazing specimen right in front of me and so close. <laughs> and, and it's a classic, like, emotional distance yeah, or redefining yeah. the situation. Yeah. But but I think that's harder to do with relatives um, than it is with one's colleagues. But, right. Uh, but, but, but I'm so for, lucky my uncle is an a-hole, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, 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 like, like a specimen like you've never sort of seen before. It, it, and I, by the way, they're, they're no longer with us, but I had a couple of relatives who were so amazing that, that, uh, that I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but I just never really seen anything like that. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> approach to take, absolutely. I wonder how many people in your life have asked you if they're an a-hole since you wrote this book. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, 
more often they tell me <laughs> when I'm being bad. About someone else you being, being oh, about you. Yes, you should know. <laughs> you should know by now that you, well, I mean, you said it. If you're around them too much, then it spreads, and you've been around yeah. them a lot. You're do, doing all this research. Um, um, yes, I have been I have been asked, if, asked especially, um, I, I've been asked if they're a-holes. I've asked, been asked by uh, people who eventually became billionaires if they had to become um this is what happened at Stanford. You meet someone when they're 26, and then three years later, they're a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. do, do, do I have to be an a-hole to, be, uh, to, to get rich? And my answer is no. There's lots of people. You can start with Warren Buffett you yeah. know, and, uh, and uh, Tim Cook at Apple, too, who are not a-holes who are doing just fine. You don't necessarily have to do that to get ahead. So that's the question I tend to get, get asked more. But uh, one of the problems with a-holes is they, have such a, they tend to not be very self-aware. That's what I was so, going to say is that I feel like if someone's asking if they're an a-hole, they probably care whether they are. Right, and if they right. care, then they're probably not as much of an a-hole. I think that's exactly right. Right, right. <laughs> uh, um, I guess the end result then is if you if you can't reframe as effectively or if you don't have any power to change things, um, then maybe it's just the kill them with kindness where you try to offset the amount of power they have by – reacting to everything that they do in a way that's not in accordance with the what they're giving you right like give them back something that makes no sense for what they're giving you to me the killing with kindness is it, there's two kinds of a-holes you would use it with one is very powerful narcissists honestly all the evidence about narcissists and I'll stay away from politics, but all the evidence yeah, about narcissists. Yeah, there's no one obvious that you would say, so we won't get into anything. But 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 but, but, but <laughs> let's just say with various NFL owners, okay? That 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 the brown nosing, the ass kissing, like like that's what they want. They want somebody to tell them that they're wonderful constantly. And if you've got somebody like that, uh, it, it's 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 one of the only ways to get through the day if you want to keep your yeah. job, frankly. I think right. George Steinbrenner, I don't think he would have taken criticism very well. Yeah. Um, but, but, but there's also another kind when, kind when people have less power and don't feel appreciated. We're talking about petty tyrants, people in accounting yeah. and HR. And, and when they have some power over us, but, but they don't feel respected, it, it, it's, it's actually a situation that um, reliably turns people into controlling jerks because – it makes them feel better to have some control over their lives. And there's actually um, some evidence that those are the kind of people, if you kill with kindness or actually kill with respect would be a better way to put it and treat them with esteem when other people don't, that um, that it actually might help them treat you in a nicer way yeah, and also sure. give them some respect they deserve. So so there are some situations where, where people treat us with disrespect because they feel oppressed and actually are. I would think also um... – I had an, an a-hole boss, and when I started working for him, this was years ago, mm-hmm. everyone warned me, um, and then he was not an a-hole to me because I wasn't afraid of him, even mm. though I should have been. I was a year out of school. I had zero power. I was the least powerful person in the entire place. I was at the time, I believe, working as like the office manager, front desk person before mm-hmm. I, before I was going to move to L.A. for something else. It was just temporary. Um, so I don't know if it was because it was temporary or I don't know if it's just because I don't tend to be afraid of people. But it was it was like I was kryptonite. He was I, he had no power over me because mm-hmm. I was not afraid of him being an a-hole. I wonder if that's another way to do it. It's not defiant, though. It's just I'm not. I'm not reacting to you in a way that reveals that I'm terrified. Well, well, I don't, I don't know whether this was true in your case, but one of my mottos is know your a-hole. 
and uh, and, and there, there there are certain it's my types proctologist of people, motto. Uh, uh, proctologist, <laughs> um, especially people who they say have Machiavellian Machiavellian personality. So so and they can produce this in the lab pretty easily. That that people who have Machiavellian personality essentially, when they uh, are nasty to a person or disrespectful or mean. Um, and the person shows some sign of weakness or fear, literally the pleasure centers in their brain lights up. Right. And, if, and if you're dealing with that sort of jerk, and this is somebody who's a pretty strategic jerk, that, um, that actually pushing back to them, uh, they say, oh, um, this isn't somebody I can push around. And, 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 and it's both social similarity and also it's, it's the kind of person that their brain doesn't light up when they push somebody like you around. So, uh, so, so it can be an effective um, defense me- mechanism, and, and and I don't want to get too psychological with your, your listeners, but if it's a narcissist, somebody who takes pleasure from your pain, it's a lot different. I'm not I'm a Machiavellian person. It's a lot different than a narcissist who just wants you to just brown nose them all the time. Right, right. So, so, so it sounds it like you had a work. boss who, yeah. who like who who, did, who who respected people who pushed back. Yeah, that's what it felt like. It felt like he wanted to, to try to scare people, and if they were scared, then he would keep tormenting them because he was <laughs> right, disappointed. Right. And if they didn't, they weren't scared, then he respected them, and then he didn't try to torment them, <laughs> which is uh, either way not great, but I figured no, no. it out at least. <laughs> but but, but that, by the way, that's the kind of person, people who are schoolyard bullies, that's the kind of adult bully they grow up to be. Mm. You, you remember those sort of kids who just love when other people suffer? Those yeah. are the kind of people who grow up to be a boss like that. Yeah. Uh, well, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody <laughs> expects it. Number one. What's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Oh, God, I, I just wish I was more organized. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. You're an organizational psychologist. Yes. And I realize that that name is a bit of a misnomer because it's not really about being organized. But come on. But those who can't do teach. That's true. There you go. We got we got every cliche set up for this. Perfect. Um, number two. What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Oh God. Um, probably uh, Bruce Springsteen's greatest hits or something. Mm, I like that. It's good. Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Ooh, who would it be? Uh, oh, God, oh, I want to be Steph Curry. <laughs> if nice. I want that body, I want to be able to shoot. <laughs> right. I was going to say, though, I was counting on the psychologist to be the one person that pr- chose someone from the opposite sex because they would be fascinated by that. But no, <laughs> I was let down yet again. People are so safe. They always pick the same gender. I, I'm sorry. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh God! Uh, racing sailboats. There was, there was a couple of times I thought literally when the boats capsized and you're hold, held underwater so long that you don't think you can hold your breath any longer. Uh, yeah, that's the most scared I've ever been is uh, sailing when I've capsized in the Pacific Ocean and thought I was going to die. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Um, number five. What would you consider your biggest failure? Oh God, my my biggest failure. Um, I, uh, probably my biggest failure was uh, my efforts to do. It, it, this is this is back to being an organizational psychologist to to do academic administration. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not very good at. Like I'm pretty good at like advising people who are doing administration, but uh, oh god, I'm just I'm just not very good at it. 
You have a you have a you have a brain that doesn't like things to be aligned and and organized. Then you 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 prefer for it to be chaos at all times. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, but my biggest success is is finding people both uh, I would say in marriage and at work who have those skills and still let me hang around with them. Perfect. That's <laughs> that's why I married someone that can do like math and mortgages and and those things that my brain is not interested or, or good at. Um, even though I hate being the cliche woman who doesn't like math, but man, do I own up to that one. Um, so speaking of success, number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Oh, just, uh, persistence and liking to be alone since I write books. I really, I'm always so happy when I'm alone typing. (laughs) That's interesting because one of the reasons that I like doing radio, TV, and writing is that I do not like as much being alone and typing. And I feel like the best part of writing is having written, which is a famous thing that someone (laughs) said about it. Um, I do like being done with it, but the process can be tough. Um, Number seven, the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve. And I know you already said organization, but that was a talent that you wanted to be right. magically gifted at. So this is something you have to actually work at improving. Um, so I wish that, um, and this is this is ironic, but I wish that when people really, really irritate me, that I could <laughs> not um, get annoyed at them. And especially, and everybody in my family says I can't control my facial expressions. Like when I think somebody <laughs> is an idiot or an asshole, yeah. I cannot stop the expression on my face and and, and, and it sounds funny but I get it and literally like I'll be like at family events with my wife and she'll be kicking me under the table really hard and I'm not saying a word and I can't figure out why and she says she'll say you ought to see what a mirror would look like in front of your face oh boy and I'm the same thing in faculty meetings too by the way so my department there is anyway same thing I can't can't believe that you're not organized and you have trouble dealing with a-holes (laughs) <laughs> of all things, well, you know, I'm starting you, to wonder you, why I had you on the pod. I don't think you might you might not be qualified after all. <laughs> in theory, I am in practice. Well, <laughs> there you go, there you go. Um, finally, number eight. What three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Ooh, uh, let's see. Um, so loyal, mm-hmm. um, generous, and uh i don't know it's different but having people's back so when when i when 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 i think somebody is 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 a worthy person i will um irrationally go out of the way my way to protect them and even get hurt sometimes so is that is that loyal again yeah maybe that's 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 loyal again yeah, I, give me I, another I, one i think i think people sometimes think that um, I have some creative courage, so I will, I will, I will try things at the beginning, no matter how weird they are. Okay. Whether I we'll think they will succeed or not, creatively experimental. Some... It's two words, but we'll okay. <laughs> we'll take it. Okay. Um, thank you so much. I loved talking to you. This was fascinating. I'm sure people are going to listen and they're going to have further questions about um, about how to deal with a holes. They're going to wish that they. Uh, that they were taking better notes, but um, they can perhaps message you about their a-hole problem. Yeah, yeah, at... yeah I, saw, I got 8,000 emails that, that oh. was part of the process of writing the book, so so I, I welcome it. it after people... the last book, right? They yeah, read the that and they book. were like, okay, well, now I need help. Okay. Um, so at work underscore matters is your Twitter and your website is 
www.bobsutton.net. So right. maybe if someone's a-hole problem is big and important enough, you will help them, although you have 8,000 emails. I tend so maybe to answer not. everything. When, <laughs> oh, wow. Sometimes okay. it takes me a while to catch up, but I'm pretty good about answering, unless I think they're total a-holes and I try not to answer. <laughs> God, I hope someone messages and says, Sarah is such an a-hole and she has no idea. <laughs> um, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is a story in theathletic.com um, by Craig Custance. And uh, it's a free story. Some of The Athletic, I know it's behind a paywall. This one is not. The headline is Red Wings announcer Ken Daniels shares his heartbreaking loss to save others from predatory rehabs. And uh, it's about Ken Daniels' son who went to rehab down in Florida um, and passed away uh, after a, a, a relapse and it's a terrible and, and, and sad story. And it's one we're hearing way too much of now because of the op- opioid crisis that's getting worse and worse. But the part of the story that I found fascinating that maybe you like me had not heard of before is the idea of predatory rehabs. And they actually look for folks with insurance, um, particularly strong insurance coverage that stems from being still connected to their parents' insurance. Um, and they run up excessive charges on insurance companies, and their ultimate plan is to cause a relapse in the person that they're treating to start the entire process over and keep making money off of them. So not only do they have something like a $25 test that they then will charge $1,500 to the insurance for um, and then make that money back, but they'll also really be in the business of not helping these people but um, helping them enough to keep them coming along and then allowing a relapse and starting over. And unfortunately, uh, for Ken Daniels, his son's relapse resulted in death. It, it was not a relapse that then they could re-monetize by treating him again. Um, anyway, the story is about the fight that Ken Daniels and other parents are now um, trying to have against these places, against and they're everywhere, uh, especially in Florida, supposedly, um, these predatory rehab centers. It was something I had never heard of before, um, and it's worth a read. Uh, it's worth, you know, being armed with that kind of knowledge. Uh, it's Again, it's by Craig Custance on theathletic.com. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.